Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 5, Episode 19, Hammer of the Gods, written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin, with a story credit to David Reed, who was a script coordinator and the author of two supernatural books. And this is his first of two episode story credits. His next is in season six, which we'll talk about when we get there. And this was directed by Rick Bota. This is his only episode of Supernatural. Welcome back, and thank you for bearing with me through my very first ever week off after 100 episodes. Being sick sucks. (laughs) But weirdly, it was nice taking a break after almost two years of weekly episodes. It was refreshing. So it's refreshed that we step back into a weirdly creepy episode that is often pointed to as everything that's wrong with Supernatural and how it regards religious beliefs other than Christianity. And arguably, it's quite trouncy towards Christian beliefs as well, but... This one specifically singles out several world religions, and oh, it is not nice how they handle them. So this one definitely gets my standard disclaimer. I'm going to talk about this episode as it is presented, as a work of fiction that takes place in a universe that is not our universe, and the complete lack of sensitivity toward the world religions presented is not something that I, as an American-raised Catholic, feel any authority to address beyond grumbling recognition that some of it is really bad. I'm not trying to gloss over that or minimize it, but my primary goal in this episode is to get through it and pick out the necessary relevant plot and character stuff while making disappointed Marge Simpson noises at the things that I can't change about it. And, mm, yeah, mm. <laughs> I, having been coughing for a week, um, I feel like i am got the Marge Simpson voice thing going, mm, disappointed voice down. So, <laughs> hooray. That said, this is the episode that left us hanging for years, believing or at least wondering if Gabriel was really dead. And thanks to later canon, we know the truth of his tricks here, but also have to confront some potentially wildly incongruous lore about angel blades, archangel blades, and why Lucifer would have believed that he'd killed Gabriel using anything less than the fancy bronze blade we learn about in season 13. This show has always had issues with introducing Handy, but possibly two specific weapons that leave us scratching our heads when we rewatch and wonder why those earlier episodes didn't acknowledge these magical weapons just hanging out there in the future. Like the whole fact of season four, angels apparently didn't know they all had angel blades and were completely confused about what was killing angels, even though to anybody who's used an angel blade, it's clearly an angel blade kill. So, (laughs) all of a sudden that's just retconned and gone away after a whole season of it being a mystery, and now they all have angel blades. So, 
the lore on it is definitely evolving. And we can now just chalk it all up to Chuck deciding that these things would be interesting for his story and just throwing them in at random. Or if you want to stick with the Watsonian perspective, or if you're okay moving out to the Doyleist perspective, they thought the Blades were cool and wanted to find more ways to include them in the, in the show. So, <laughs> anyway, we'll address some of that as it comes up, because Gabriel himself sort of addresses his own weapon in the episode. How convenient. Because right now we've got an apocalypse to be getting back to, and I don't want to waste another moment just blathering on here. This one is probably going to be a little bit sparse because I may have taken a week off, but it's still hard to talk for (laughs) extended periods. So hopefully I'll just be able to be quite brief in my summaries. Good luck with that. The then segment opens with a reminder right back to Changing Channels, where Gabriel was telling them Sam starring as Lucifer, Dean starring as Michael, to play the roles that destiny has made for them. And then we go back through our evolution of Gabriel, that they couldn't kill him before because maybe he wasn't really the trickster. Maybe he was always an angel. Dean accused Gabriel of just being too afraid to stand up to his family. And then we cut to Dean being Michael stupid and trying to say yes in the previous episode going back to Lisa and telling her that she'll be protected. And then we go right to the green room with Zachariah at the end of last episode, where Dean says, he'll do it. He'll say yes, but he's got a few conditions. And then he kills Zachariah. And then at the end of last week's episode, driving away, what made Dean change his mind? He just didn't want to let Sam down. If the world's all ending anyway, They're going to take the fight to them their way. And then we come to now. A car pulls up to a extremely dilapidated and abandoned looking motel called the Elysian Fields. Ha ha. It's a security guard and he lets himself in to inspect the place. There's strange noises that he goes to investigate, much to his misfortune. The whole place is just absolutely trashed except we see a dead plant on the counter spring to life and flowers grow out of it. So some magical force is transforming this place. The guard turns around and there's a man behind him looking all clean and dapper and guard tells him he can't be there. And the man's just like, oh yes, of course I can. I somebody has to get the place ready. They're all coming. The new man tells the guard that Everyone's got their part to play, even you, your dinner. And he gives him a little grin, and then we see the blood spatter on the wall. And the title card. Some unspecified amount of time later, but presumably not too long, we go back to the exterior of the Legion Fields Hotel, and it looks all spiffed up, freshly renovated, beautiful, pristine lights and signs, no more condemned sign on the building. And the parking lot's full of cars. Place is kind of swanky. And we see the Impala pull right up to the front door. Sam and Dean are kind of marveling at the nice hotel, but it's really, really rainy outside. They're both soaking wet from just running in from the car. And as they check in, it's the same clerk who killed the security guard in the cold open. 
And now Dean has a little bleeding nick on his chin. The clerk points it out to him to let him know, oh, sir, you've cut yourself. This clerk is extremely efficient, probably too efficient, and they should be suspecting something, but they're not because they knew exactly how to lure Sam and Dean in here. Not only do they have a place where they can get some food, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet with the best pie in the tri-state area. There's a whole big dessert buffet table. Dean is in heaven. Dean's in such a good mood going back from the buffet that he's just strolling along and pulling on his usual charms. He sees an attractive woman in a red dress sitting alone drinking, and he's like, how are you doing? Not really any intent of putting any moves on her, just testing waters and you know he's just in a good mood this is how he behaves when he's in a good mood she shuts him down with no and he's just like oh well I was just being you know no she just shuts him down leaving Dean feeling very wrong-footed for even attempting to be polite let alone flirtatious with her Kali the destroyer she just destroyed Dean meanwhile back at their table Dean's advising Sam to quote unpucker and enjoy himself, have some food, and Sam is suspicious of this entire place. He's like, we should hit the road, Dean. Sam does think they should still be out on the road looking for whatever they can find. Dean points out that they haven't really had much downtime in a week. They've spoken to every hoodoo person in 12 states, and Bobby's got his feelers out, and it's absolutely biblically raining outside, and you know what? They're going to take it for the break that it's being offered to them. Sam's right to be suspicious, but I'm with Dean, too. I, I can see why they wouldn't have felt overly suspicious of this and just left. We follow the waitress back into the kitchen, though, where we see the chef is chopping up human body parts. Clearly not for the buffet they're serving the guests, but for their own private function later. As Sam and Dean find their room... In the next room over is a clearly honeymooning couple, very eager to get each other out of their clothes. They haven't even made it inside their room. And Dean is just kind of like smiling at him like, oh yeah, young love, I guess. The room itself is really nice. Like one of the nicest, swankiest looking motel rooms they've ever stayed at. And there's even chocolates on their pillow. This just makes Sam even more suspicious. What's this hotel doing in the middle of nowhere? And Dean's like, I don't know. You know, who cares? It's here. And then from their honeymooning couple next door's room, they hear a very loud bang that dislodges some of the brickwork in their room. It's like somebody was thrown almost through the wall, which is definitely very suspicious. They may have been eagerly going at it, but, you know, They weren't destruction of property going at it. So Sam and Dean run next door to check on the couple. They open the door and don't find anybody. The room's vacant. The bed's all tossed like they were using it a moment ago. And the only evidence that the couple had even been there is the woman's engagement ring on the floor. Sam and Dean go back to the front desk to ask about the couple what happened to them. The smarmy little creepy dude at the front counter tells them, oh, they just checked out. And Sam and Dean do not buy this for a second because they were pretty busy with, you know, getting it on just a few minutes earlier. Dean says it's pretty weird that they would have checked out without this and holds up the engagement ring, which the clerk takes and says he'll put it in the lost and found. 
Sam and Dean stroll away, and obviously they are unsatisfied with the explanation they received. Dean is grumbling because he just wanted one night off. Was that too much to ask? But no, clearly they've got a case again. Dean goes to scope out the place and leaves Sam in the lobby to keep an eye on, quote, Norman Bates at the front desk. Sam follows the clerk around a corner and then around another corner, at which point he seems to have just vanished in front of a soda machine. Sam's just standing there wondering where he went, and then you hear a little noise, and Sam flinches. Something cut his neck, too, now. Meanwhile, Dean's exploring the second floor of the motel with his EMF meter, and through one of the open doors, there's an elephant in the motel room. When Dean backs up to do a double take, did I just see an elephant? It's just a guy wrapping a towel around his waist, and he shuts the door. And it's like, dude, why did you have the door to your motel room open while you were getting dressed, whether you're an elephant or not? But now Dean's mostly just wondering if he's hallucinating. We return to Callie's room where she's with a gentleman in a fancy suit when the front desk clerk comes in alerting them that their last guest has arrived and everything is ready. And the man is like, and the Winchesters? And the front desk clerk is like, suspicious, but under control. He has their blood, and he zips across the room in the blink of an eye and hands the woman two vials. And she addresses him as Mercury, speedy little messenger of the gods. Sam and Dean reunite back in the lobby, where they realize that all the guests, everybody seems to be gone. Sam tries the front door, and it's locked. They realize that they are trapped. Sam reminds Dean of how they even got there, that there was a detour on I-90, and they were detoured down this road, where this was the only place to stay. They were lured there. Sam and Dean explore the kitchen, where they discover a pot of not-tomato soup on the stove, sorry, Dean, (laughs) with human eyeballs in it, and they realize that something is terribly, horribly wrong at this motel. Sam checks out the walk-in cooler, and a bunch of the other motel guests are trapped in there, begging for help. Sam's unable to get the door unlocked before a couple of security guards, let's call them, show up and haul Sam and Dean off to the Grand Ballroom, where they are apparently the guests of honor. We get a quick flash of a bunch of the name tags of the gods in this room. Ganesh, the elephant, Odin, Kali, Baron Samadhi, and then Mercury wheels out a cart and announces that dinner is served, and it features the security guard's head from the cold open. Sam and Dean are concerned. Balder, the man in the suit from earlier in Kali's motel room, calls the whole group to order. The guests of honor have arrived. They seat Sam and Dean at the top of the U-shaped table, and he starts talking about how he never expected to see this many gods under one roof. And Sam's the one who's like, gods? Dean's the one who actually recognized them. We saw from his point of view as he registered who all of these people are. They've apparently all convened because the Judeo-Christian, as he says, which is not a thing. Just putting that out there. Apocalypse is looming, though, 
and they want to prevent it because it's not their religion's apocalypse or end of the world scenario. They don't have time for this angel fighting angel nonsense that's going to destroy their worlds, too. One of the gods stands up and says that he thinks they should kill them. Somebody else laughs and says the angels will just bring them back again. And the gods just start infighting amongst themselves. Odin says he knows how the world's going to end. He's going to be devoured by a giant wolf. And another deity's like, why are we supposed to believe that? Like, they each think that their view of everything is the primary one. And everybody else is just slightly silly. While they're infighting, Sam and Dean take the opportunity to try and sneak away, which doesn't work when a chandelier almost drops on them. Everyone else might be fighting, but Kali is still paying attention to them. Kali says the only thing the archangels understand is violence. This ends in blood. There is no other way. And doesn't that just sound like supernatural Chuck's story boiled down to a fine point. Mercury suggests that, you know, they haven't even tried talking to the angels yet. Maybe they can talk them out of it. And Kali does not appreciate this idea. She just tries to silence Mercury. He starts coughing up blood. And finally, Balder puts a stop to it when Gabriel comes barging through the door. Sam and Dean recognize him immediately, of course. He's like, can't we all just get along? And as Sam's about to say Gabriel, Gabriel silences both of them with a wave of his fingers. And Baldur greets him as Loki. Gabriel complains that his invitation must have gotten lost in the mail. Why wasn't he invited? And he's just there because of the same reason all of them are, to stop the apocalypse. But it can't be stopped. Gabriel then turns back to Sam and Dean and is like, the adults need to have a little conversation, and snaps them out of the room and frees them from their inability to speak spell. They're back in their motel room. They're not outside or free or anything, but at least they're free to talk to each other, where they can process what the hell they just saw. <laughs> Sam is just like, next time I say let's keep driving, let's, let's just keep driving. Dean's like, okay, yeah, next time. We're kind of stuck in the middle of this now. They agree their next move is trying to free all those people from the fridge and getting the hell out of there if they're lucky. And Gabriel pops into the room and it's like, when are you ever lucky? Clearly never. Dean cannot understand why Gabriel is there just to bust them out. Gabriel insists that he still hasn't changed his mind. The apocalypse is still going to happen. Michael and Lucifer are still going to fight. But it's not going to be here, and it's not going to be tonight. Dean can't understand why Gabriel would care about that little detail. And Gabriel kind of hedges. He's like, yeah, well, me and Callie had a thing. But you could tell he actually cares about these other gods, however long he's been playing the role of Loki. He's fond of these gods. He's one of them. Or, you know, he's been pretending to be one of them. And he doesn't want to see them do this to themselves to bring about their own destruction because they tried to meddle in the affairs of angels. Dean asks Gabriel to just zap them out of there then. Gabriel says he can't because Kali's got their blood, which is preventing him from being able to zap them. 
Dean's mad because Gabriel will not also help them free all the humans that are in the fridge and is trying to use that as leverage over Gabriel. He's like, they don't really know who you are, do you? And Gabriel's like, no, I'm in witness protection. Dean's like, well, how about I just spill your little secret about who you really are? So while Sam and Dean explore the hotel, trying to figure out a way to get all those people out the fridge, Gabriel goes to Kali, tries to play on their past relationship. Sam and Dean have to hide when a bunch of the gods bring one of the guys from the fridge out to the front desk and just slaughter him. Dean tries to go to his rescue and Sam holds him back. He's like, there's nothing we could do. We can't stop these gods. Apparently, Kali was the one who told Gabriel to be here. She's the one who sent him the secret invitation. Gabriel is like, well, this planet is done. Let's go find another. And Kali's like, well, it doesn't have to be like that. Gabriel's still aboard the the apocalypse is coming and there's nothing we can do to stop it train. He's just trying to save as many of his friends as he can in lifeboats. Gabriel fails to convince Kali to abandon her plan to whatever it is that she's trying to do. Sam and Dean make it back to the fridge where everybody inside is banging on the thing. You'd think they'd tell them to, you know, shut up. We're trying to save you. We can't do that if you're yelling and screaming and drawing attention. But no, Sam's trying to pick the lock and Dean gets flung across the room. As we cut back and forth between Gabriel slowly trying to reach for Sam and Dean's blood vials and the fight in the kitchen, Dean manages to ram a steak of some sort into the guy attacking Sam and kill him, apparently. And Gabriel getting a nick of his own. Kali has his blood now, too. And apparently she knew exactly who he was all along because she calls him Gabriel. And as we look at Gabriel's blood on her fingertips, we cut to a trailer for the Ghost Facers, which was a whole series and is one of the bonus features on the Blu-ray. We then cut back to Sam and Dean being dragged back into the Grand Ballroom again. Kali has known that Gabriel was Gabriel for a while, and that's why she'd brought him there, lured him there just like she did Sam and Dean, because she knew that he had an in with the archangels because he was one. Kali tells him that he has something she wants. She reaches into his coat and pulls out an angel blade and says that it's the archangel Gabriel's blade. We know from later canon that there is a specific archangel blade that can only be wielded by one archangel to kill another, and it looks nothing like a standard angel blade. And we've never seen any of the other archangels wield one of these silver standard angel blades. So why does Gabriel have one? And why did Lucifer believe it could have killed Gabriel when we know that this other lore exists out there? We didn't know it in season five, but we will know it in season 13. Did they change the lore on purpose? Did Chuck decide he didn't like the storyline of any standard angel blade being able to kill an archangel? I mean, he obviously had to make it at least a little bit difficult, or one of the other angels could have just, you know, Sam or Dean with a regular angel blade could have killed Lucifer at any time. There was no, 
danger factor to it. Like, why were they all hunting for the cult if Cass's blade could have killed Lucifer all along? That's just silly, right? What makes this blade special? Does it just look visually different from the Archangel Blade in Season 13 because props made a special one for the purpose? Or is our limited human perception, like all things heaven, telling us that it should look like a regular standard Angel Blade and it's just a matter of our perception of it? Who knows? But rationalize it however you want. We're supposed to believe that this blade is capable of killing an Archangel. Gabriel, though, now that he's lost his weapon, supposedly, to Kali, tells the group, okay, so maybe I'm an angel, but that doesn't make me wrong about Lucifer. Kali accuses him of being a spy, and Gabriel says, no, I'm a runaway. I'm trying to save you. I know my brother, and he is just going to wipe the floor with all of you. Gabriel tells them that he's skipped ahead, seen how this story ends. I'm going to detour for one moment and talk about how I see the archangels as facets of Chuck. Gabriel is that facet of Chuck that we relate to best. The Chuck persona facet, the storyteller, the manipulator of reality because it's interesting. The one who engages with and enjoys reality on some level. Gabriel takes it to a degree farther than Chuck ever even is capable of doing. But he understands the storytelling because that's been part of his thing as the trickster, as someone who teaches them lessons or gives people their comeuppance. It's all about storytelling. He gets that. And he tries to warn them that the story only ends one way. And isn't that a very Chuck thing to say? Kali disagrees with that completely. She's like, that's not our story. That's your story. Don't try and write our story for us. And isn't that a theme that recurs throughout Supernatural? That's your story, not ours. Dean will tell that to Marie in fan fiction. I thought you hated this version of Supernatural. And Dean's like, well, that's your story. It might not be our story, but it's a valid story. And it's something that Amara will say to Chuck in season 11, that this whole thing was his story, not her story. And it'll become a battle of who gets to play storyteller? Whose story are they living out? Do they each have free will to tell their own stories? Or are they still being sucked back into this larger narrative just because of obligation and the way that they keep being entrapped by the story itself? Chuck's story is uh, pretty pervasive when he's got a target on you and refuses to leave you alone. It was even one of the main themes in the Winchesters. Whose story are we watching? Who has the power to write their own story? And that's what Dean gave that universe was the ability to write their own story instead of being beholden to a cosmic story for them. Kali tells Gabriel that there are more religions on Earth and more gods, so why should his get to destroy the Earth? She was there first, and she apologizes to him and stabs him with his blade. For all intents and purposes, even Sam and Dean think that worked. They think they just watched Gabriel get killed. 
But that convinces Kali that the archangels can die. They can kill Lucifer. They've got the blade that can do it. Sam and Dean have lost their only ally in the room, and Dean stands up, and he's like, okay, listen up. Sam tries to tell Dean to sit down and shut up, and Dean's like, it's not like we have any options. Dean does what he usually does and tries to make the best of it. Dean delivers his little speech of camaraderie with them that, you know, any other day I would be trying to kill you, and he slips as many insults as he can into his little speech and tries to put on a big show of bravado that he's not absolutely terrified, turns around and pours himself a drink at the bar and tells them that he's going to help them ice the devil. Sam is incredibly dubious about this. Dean tells Kali that he and Sam can get Lucifer there. And Callie's like, how? Dean says, well, first, you're going to let all those people go, and then we'll talk. The gods aren't particularly fond of this plan. They don't like letting their whole pantry run free. Dean's like, you can either do things my way, or we can ice the devil together, or you can eat me. Literally. And the gods agree. They let all these poor people go. And it stopped raining outside. (laughs) They're no longer being driven to this place. But as Dean's outside herding them all to their cars, he's distracted because he sees Gabriel sitting in the back seat of the Impala. He gets inside and talks to Gabriel. He's like, I thought you were dead. I don't know if Dean is exactly relieved to discover that Gabriel is still alive, but it does set up our belief that Gabriel uses this trick. In case it wasn't abundantly clear from every other time we've ever seen him in canon and (laughs) had Dean drive a stake through him, only to find out, oops, not the right guy. His illusions are good enough to fool other gods and apparently Lucifer himself. Gabriel, however, says he's only alive because he's not stupid enough to let Callie have his real sword. That she actually stabbed him. It was just a fake sword that he made out of a can of diet orange slice. Gabriel is now putting the mission to snag all of their blood on Dean. Callie apparently likes Dean. Gabriel thinks he can use that to his advantage to pilfer their bloods so that they can escape, because otherwise Callie will just be right back on them again. Dean tells him, no, hand over the real blade, or better yet, you come on in there with us and help us take out Lucifer. Gabriel's like, since when were you butt buddies with a bunch of monsters? That's all you think of them, isn't it? And Dean's like, you know, circumstances... They've got the right idea. It might be the best plan they've got right now. Gabriel says, okay, then you're on your own. I'm not sticking around to watch them all be slaughtered by Lucifer. Dean's like, yeah, no, no, I don't buy this. You care just as much as we do. You know, those gods in there might not be your blood, but they are your family. Gabriel's like, well, they just stabbed me in the heart. Dean's like, yeah, but that doesn't change anything. You still care about them. Gabriel gets very serious. He's like, I I can't kill my brother, even if all those other people I care about die because of it. He still can't kill his brother. And Dean, for all of his pushing Gabriel into doing it here, Dean can't kill his brother either, you know? So, I mean, they've got that in common, but Dean's brother isn't trying to destroy the world. 
and everything in it. And it looks like Gabriel is not going to help. It looks like he's just going to sit there and wait. And that leaves it to Dean to go back inside and tell all the gods, well, Gabriel's alive. You didn't actually kill him. Your sword's a fake. It's not going to do anything to Lucifer. Meanwhile, at the front desk, Lucifer rings the bell and is checking in. And he looks worse for wear. Apparently, Mercury called Lucifer, being the messenger god. He could do that, apparently. And none of the other gods realized that. (sighs) They're trying to use Sam and Dean as bait for Lucifer, when they could have just had Mercury deliver him an engraved invitation. And Lucifer proceeds to just insult Mercury and all the other gods in one fell swoop. Lucifer tells him he's worse than humans, worse than demons, and yet you claim to be gods. He just waggles a finger at Mercury, and it snaps his neck, and he falls dead to the floor. So it's starting to look like Sam and Dean and Gabriel were all right. This was a very, very bad idea. The lights start flickering in the ballroom, and it's my favorite star lamps that Jerry Wanick absolutely loves, and turn up in a lot of places where Lucifer eventually shows up. But Balder and Kali can't understand what's happening as we cut back out to the main room and see Lucifer just strolling around, killing every single god he comes across, including Odin, which will be the impetus for the actual Loki coming back into the story in season 13 to get revenge against Gabriel for having gotten his father killed. And it's like, Gabriel was trying to stop all of this, okay? He does not get blame for this. He warned them that this was a stupid idea. But no. Sam recognizes that it's got to be Lucifer there, and they don't understand how. They don't realize Mercury called him. And Dean's like, okay, we'll get us the hell out of here. And Balder's like, we can't. Lucifer has locked them down. Balder charges at Lucifer, and Lucifer just sticks his hand through his chest and pulls out his heart. So that leaves Kali as the only god still standing here. She throws a fireball at Lucifer, and it just washes over him, doesn't harm him in the least, and he punches her back across the room. Sam and Dean, meanwhile, are hiding behind a table going like, what the fuck are we supposed to do about this? When Gabriel appears beside them, he's like, uh, better late than never, right? As if Gabriel had changed his mind and decided to face off against Lucifer, like he was prepared to kill Lucifer. He hands Dean a DVD case for Casa Erotica 13 and tells him to guard it with his life and then gets up and goes out to face Lucifer. Just as Lucifer's about to stomp on Kali, Gabriel sends him flying through the doors and out into the hallway. Gabriel helps Kali to her feet and holds Lucifer at bay, tells him no, not this time, and then calls for Sam and Dean to escort Kali out of the building and to get them the hell away from there. Gabriel has one chance to confront Lucifer, though, And he tells him, you know, you're my brother, and I love you, but you are a great big bag of dicks. Boo-hoo, you know, daddy was mean to me, so I'm going to smash up all of his toys. Gabriel's like, we all knew you were the favorite until God brought the new baby home, humanity, 
and you couldn't handle it anymore, that you weren't the favorite anymore, and this has all been just your temper tantrum. Sam, Dean, and Kali get in the Impala and drive away to safety, but back inside, Lucifer's like, you wouldn't be saying this stuff to Michael. Gabriel's like, if he was here, I'd shiv his ass too. The two of you both need to grow up. Lucifer tries to accuse Gabriel of being disloyal, and Gabriel's like, no, I am loyal to people, to humanity. Gabriel tells Lucifer that Dad was right. People are better than us. Lucifer's like, well, they're broken. And Gabriel's like, yeah, they are. But a lot of them still try. They try to do their best. Gabriel tells him that he's not going to sit on the sidelines anymore. He's in this and he's not on Lucifer's side. He's not on Michael's side. He's on humanity's side. And Lucifer gets very quiet and says, don't make me do this. Like, his only choice is to kill Gabriel. So while he's standing there talking to Gabriel, he says, I know you think you're doing the right thing, but I know where your heart truly lies. So Lucifer turns around, and there's a second Gabriel standing behind him with this angel blade raised like he was going to stab Lucifer in the back. Lucifer turns around and stabs it into Gabriel's gut instead. And we see a proper angel flame out with wing prints and everything. And the supposedly fake Gabriel that had been talking to him disappears like one of his own illusions. Lucifer actually looks regretful over having killed Gabriel. But that didn't stop him from doing it. And, of course, we know that Gabriel didn't actually die there. It was a double illusion, and he was watching from the other side of the room. He thinks he's free. He thinks he was able to give Sam and Dean the information they would need to stop the apocalypse, to lock Lucifer back up. But that's when Loki set him up to be captured by Asmodeus and put in prison for the better part of a decade (laughs) being tortured and having his grace drained and being unable to escape. And that seems like a really terrible punishment for something that Gabriel didn't even do. And yet, it's what we will find out he has endured. And all this time, he thought he had escaped cleanly and given Sam and Dean all that they needed in the contents of that Casa Erotica video, which it then cuts to. Just like the Ghost Facers ad earlier in this episode, we now get a Casa Erotica. As we're watching the beginning of the Casa Erotica video, we cut to Sam and Dean watching it on the laptop on top of the Impala. And Sam's like, this is what Gabriel told you to guard with your life? In the video, there's a knock on the door and it's room service. The door opens and it's Gabriel with a platter of sausage. Hungarian. But before it cuts to any of the action of the porn, (laughs) Gabriel turns to the camera and addresses Sam and Dean. If you're seeing this, that means I'm dead. Sorry, you've got zero shot of killing Lucifer without me. But you've got a shot still to lock him back up in the cage. The cage still exists down in hell, And there's a key, four of them, 
the horseman's rings. Gabriel tells Dean, you were right. I was afraid to stand up to my brother. So this is me standing up. And this is me lying down. And he tackles the woman onto the bed. And Dean's like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. We're not watching this. And they shut the laptop. But they apparently now have a key to the cage that even Lucifer doesn't know exists, supposedly. If only they can figure out a way to get all those horseman rings and then lure Lucifer into a place where they can trick him into the cage. Sure, that sounds so simple, right? But it's better than no plan, which is what they had at the beginning of this episode. And it all just feels kind of conveniently placed in the way that Chuck likes to conveniently place things in their path that might be helpful, but oh, jeez, no, they're really not in the end. Like the cult that was supposed to be their first half of the season magical kill Lucifer weapon, only to discover, nope, it's totally useless against him. And every other thing that they've thought along the way that you know, maybe we'll get God on our side. Nope. Sorry. He doesn't care. He's not going to help you. It almost feels like God is just taunting them at this point with things that might work because right now they've got just enough hope to carry on. Dean's like, well, we've already got wars and we've already got famines. We just need pestilence and death and we're good. And then we get one final little scene at the end of the episode as Sam and Dean drive away with hope that they've actually got something of a plan, even if it sounds ridiculous and impossible at this point. We see this really awful-looking, gross, vomit-green car pull up to a place, and the guy gets out, and he looks all sickly and germy and mucusy, and he just walks through this general store smearing germs all over everything, and like flies are swarming around him. And he gets some cold medicine, but sneezes all over the clerk, who will end up in the hospital at the beginning of the next episode, but that's neither here nor there, because this is pestilence, just spreading his germs. The guy inside the shop is looking at a newspaper that says, you know, the influenza virus is spreading like crazy and the Surgeon General says, stay home. And it's like, it, it feels really uh, familiar in a way that I really wish it didn't <laughs> after the last three years of pandemic life. <sighs> the innocent days back in 2010 when this originally aired and None of us had lived through this garbage. <sighs> but I guess that's more for us to talk about next week as we actually deal with pestilence and the supernatural universe's plague. I think it's also funny that as he walks through the front door, pestilence, you could see the sign over his shoulder, bait. Yep, this poor clerk is becoming pestilence's bait. And as he drives down the road, his entire car fills with a swarm of flies and he just smiles. And yes, I think, I'm sorry, famine was gross, but pestilence is definitely the most disgusting of all the horsemen. <laughs> and no contest. Anyway, and that's where the episode ends. And for years, we all thought Gabriel was dead or wondered, you know, did he really die? Is he going to come back? 
what was keeping him from coming back through all the other years of supernatural trauma and drama that we see play out. If Gabriel was still alive out there, wouldn't he have come back by now? They obviously explain why he didn't, but he tried. He may not have quite succeeded in his own redemption arc, but he was on the right path, more so than any of the other archangels. He actually did care about humanity. He may not have been willing to pull for Michael or Lucifer to stop it, but he was determined to at least stand down and not support either of them either and not support the entire endeavor. He was just going to walk away. No more pushing for Sam and Dean to play their roles. He actually said, look, there might still be another way, even if he didn't believe even when he handed them that information that they could actually succeed and do anything with it. You know, he's like, I've been wrong about you guys before. You've proven yourselves that, you know, maybe in a pinch, you'll actually succeed. And gave them hope, which is more than any of the other archangels have ever done. And he might not have fully understood humanity, but he understood that humans try. And he was willing to step back and let them make their own choices, which is more than you can say for Chuck. Chuck was too caught up in his own story. He didn't even have the flexibility that Gabriel did to choose a different story when the one he was working on didn't work out for him. You know, unable to just let it go and walk away. Anyway, so I'm just saying Gabriel's better than God. There, somebody had to say it. (laughs) Anyway. So that's that one pretty straightforwardly wrapped up. It also leads us directly into next week's episode, Season 5, Episode 20, The Devil You Know, who happens to be Crowley. And we will uh, deal with him and Pestilence and we'll finally find Cass again, because that had been one of the things that Dean had listed off at the beginning of the episode that they were still trying to do, that they were still trying to find Cass after he zapped himself and all of those other angels away in last week's episode. They still have no idea what happened to him. So it hasn't been all that long, but, you know, long enough that they're starting to get really concerned. Anyway, until then, you can find me on Tumblr at Mittensmorgle or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865 or you can email me at mittensmorgle at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. And I know this one is really short, but I mean, honestly, it's like total myth arc, all straightforward, even though it looks like a monster of the week. And I honestly didn't have the fortitude to maintain this for any longer, even if I wanted to. Free will versus... You know, we didn't have any other choice. Just a reminder that there's all these other people all over the planet, all these other entities who are gods in their own right, but that Chuck's story is going to run rampant over all of them anyway. And the way it's handled in this episode is less than stellar, let's just say. And 
I would spend an hour just pointing out all the ways that it was just horrifying. And instead, I just chose to not name most of the gods and just let it be characters in a drama in a universe that is not ours and has no correlation with our universe in any way, shape, or form. And hope that that's enough to at least get us through the content that we needed, which was basically Gabriel's apparently dead in that universe and they have a way to trap Lucifer again. And that's all you really need to take away from this one. And Dean can't have nice things and they can't catch a break, like actual just time off, which is really all Dean wants. He just wants a little rest, you know? (laughs) and some pie and you know maybe a night to kick back in a place that the motel is a little bit nicer than usual that's all he wants he's a simple man anyway have a good and everyone